The Jewish Trauma Network provides education, guidance, and inspiration to individuals and families suffering from trauma to help them create a better life of connection and self-actualization. I'm your host, Dr. Yosef Tropper, and my greatest wish is to bring calmness, hope, and success to your life. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today. Uh, we have Nassanel Nate Nagelblatt with us, and we're going to be talking about trauma and addiction. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Um, Thanks for having me. Amazing. I'm going to give a quick intro, uh, just a little bio, and then we will jump, dive right into this, um, our topic of trauma and addiction. So Nassanel Nate Nagelblatt um, has, has an MSW and LCSW. Um, he is a PhD candidate, which is amazing, and an associate professor at Wurzweiler School of Social Work. He has worked with treatment facilities to help design and maintain holistic and culturally competent, which is what brings us here today, treatment models for members of the Frum community struggling with addiction. He maintains a private practice in Lakewood, New Jersey. Welcome, Nisanal. I always love to start off and just kind of ask some definitions. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about addiction. Um, I would love to just kind of get your opinion on how do you see those? How do you conceptualize? Maybe let's start with addiction because that one's kind of really the expertise and the focus of today's podcast. Sorry. So I, I am going to say this, Joseph, if you don't interrupt me, I will keep going for the next hour just on this question, um, because I think there's so much here. Um, and and I've even done this like in other presentations. So many people want to get to like, what's the answer? What's the solution? But I think if you don't properly conceptualize the problem, we're barking up the wrong tree, right? So I think how we conceptualize addiction will influence the paths that we take to treating addiction. Um, very, very briefly, like, for example, since the 1960s, uh, since the war on crime uh, on, on drugs has really been been um, you know um, opened in full force, um, the United States government has taken the legal approach to addiction, right? Where it's a crime to engage in, and if you do, you will be penalized. Now, we're 50 years into this war, and I think we're seeing how great that's going, right? Um, but that's if you view the addiction as a legal problem. People obviously can't control themselves. They're engaging in criminal behavior. And we need to stamp out criminal behavior by punitive, um, a punitive response. Um, I, I think we're actually seeing a regression of that, thankfully now a little bit, um, even in terms of drug courts. like the, the, Even the, the, the criminal justice system would much rather work with people. I know I've worked with people who were going to go to jail for an extended period of time. And they were able to avoid jail time by entering into treatment. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, we're seeing that shift. Um, I think there's the medical uh, model. So like the medical conceptualization of addiction, it's a, it's a um, chemical um, imbalance or a disorder in the brain. I, I think that does happen with, with addiction. And, and um, there are um, elements of that model. I think, um, I don't, I, again, I don't want to generalize, but let's say if we go with the medical model and we're looking for a medical solution, right? And we're looking for um, medication to treat an addiction like Vivitrol, uh, like Narcan, like Suboxone, uh, like Methadone, which again, I, I want to be, you know, I want all the listeners, I don't know if everyone is aware of all these drugs, but that would be the medical approach. And and some of those and, drugs that you're mentioning, just to clarify, some of them are preventative measures to try to help people with the addiction. Some of them are, um, interventions for if somebody overdosed, et cetera. So sure. definitely. Yeah. But yeah. I think I think what I'm asking is is more just to kind of spice it up a little bit. It's estimated that since 2000, approximately 700,000 people in the United States have died because of overdose. So we all understand that there's some level where addiction becomes maladaptive and causes death. And that's certainly, you know, one of the largest things that we're trying to pull away from. We also understand that somebody that has an addiction problem is not you know, usually not going to be living a very functional life and their personal life and their family life is going to be impacted, right? We meet people like this all the time who, you know, have have had that tragic loss. So I'm kind of asking, you know, when, when you talk about addiction in that context, um, you know, maybe how are you defining it? I, I know you said there's some medical terms or medical things or, or also are there specific substances? You know, I, I know it's a Pandora's box, but do we want to talk about, you know, what is addiction? Is it that substance? Is it, you know, pornography? Uh, is it, you know, sex or are we only talking about, mm -hmm. you know, drugs, alcohol, et cetera? Good. So I want to, I want to get to that answer. Okay. I, I just like to back up for one second. You, you threw out this, um, well, this stat, right? 750,000 deaths. I think, you know, we're, we're upwards now since COVID definitely over a hundred thousand overdoses, um, a year. Um, you know, it, it's, I think the surgeon general a couple of years ago, you know, um, uh, 
um, the current sets are showing the life expectancy in the United States is actually dropping. And one of the reasons for life expectancy uh, reduction is, is mainly because of, uh, well, partially because of addiction um, related fatalities as well as suicides. But in addition to the loss of life, um, there are other like intangible side effects to addiction that we really have a hard time quantifying. So, um, the client of mine who has a father of four and was clean for a while, but due to life circumstances and now relapse and he's in full blown addiction, he's struggling right now. And again, this is a generic case, right? This is an actual, this is a composite character. Um, but this individual is struggling right now. If they don't get clean now, um, they may not die, but they may spend the next 10 years of their lives in and out of treatment centers, um, in and out of the house, separated, talking about divorce, not divorce. They may get clean 10 years from now, but 10 years in their children's lives will never come back. And their kids will have grown up without father for those 10 years. And, and I don't think we can put a price tag on that loss. Like it's not quantifiable. Um, so I think the numbers that we see, the measurable negative outcomes of addiction that we do see, I believe are only the tip of the iceberg. Um, I don't remember the stats right now, but but there's an, there, there, there are millions of Americans who struggle with um, addictions that they somehow manage to, um, we, we call them like um, um, high bottoms, right? They're not rock bottom, like really, really, you know, horrible situations, but they're managing, they're going to work, they're somehow managing with their kids but they're in full-blown addiction and it has a, it has a really, really um, negative effect on those kids. All right. Now to your question. Okay. In terms of what addiction is, I think it's such an important question because the word addiction has been co-opted. Okay. Everybody's an addict. All right. I did a presentation a couple of weeks ago where somebody asked me, um, you know, I drink coffee every day and the one day I don't have coffee, I shake and I feel really uncomfortable. Am I an addict? Right. Um, it, it, it's become so part of the vernacular, right? Everyone's an addict, um, that it, it ends up, um, diminishing the actual word. So just because someone has a dependence on something does not mean they're addicted to that thing, right? You take this thing away from me, right? And for those who are listening, my cell phone, I'm going to go through a level of withdrawal, right? It's going to feel uncomfortable, right? I found anybody. Put your phone away for an hour and a half and just don't touch it. Keep it inside. Just don't touch it. It's going to feel uncomfortable. That dependency does not mean you're addicted to it. It just means that there's a level of dependency in your life. Um, just to, just to accentuate that, you know, if you use like the sure. cage, it's a very quick assessment. So mm -hmm. one of the things are, you know, you tried to stop and you couldn't, or, you know, your family members say that it's a problem and, you know, you feel guilty about it. And it's the first thing you do, you know, the E of cage is eyes. You open your eyes to it, right? How many of us, open our eyes to our cell phone. So exactly, you know, well said, what, yeah. what is an addiction? It's a problem. Right. right, right. So, so I think, I think it's really important um, to, to be able to be clear. And this is going to be a little bit challenging. We want to be clear about the terminology, but we also want to leave. There's a little bit room for vagueness, right? There is right. Because there are people, and I'm sure, yes, if you may, I'm sure some of the listeners may know people who we couldn't appropriately call them addicted to their phones, but the DSM-5 would not pay for their treatment, right? We wouldn't be able to get an insurance company to pay for their treatment. Um, so it's a little bit of a gray zone, but the way that I conceptualize addiction is how greatly is it impacting two areas of your life? Your ability to engage with your family, your ability. What was it? The first one was ability to engage. Your ability to engage with your family yeah. and your ability to work, right? Work. So yeah, to work, right? So if you're... If you are showing up an hour or two hours late to work because you're watching pornography, um, the DSM may not have a diagnosis of a porn addiction, right? Um, again, we might not be able to get insurance companies to pay for it, but you have a problem, right? There's a significant problem in which you're engaging in a behavior, and we'll talk about maladaptive and adaptive. You're engaging in a behavior that is having a detrimental effect on your ability to provide for your to work, but also to be there for your family. Um, and this is one of the workarounds, and I don't know if we're going to get here. A lot of my clients hate the word addict. Some of them love it, actually. They like going to call meetings and say, hey, my name is Nate. I'm a recovering alcoholic. 
it gives them an identity. It helps them um, get rid of the denial. But some people really don't like it because they feel it's very one-dimensional. Like that's all that there is to my life. That's it. The sum total of my entire life is I'm an addict. You know, there's so many other facets. So a lot of times when I'm working with clients, I don't need to stick to that definition. My question always is, are you functional? Is this working for you? Because if it's working for you, by God, keep doing it. Do it more. Like, I think we all engage in coping mechanisms. If this coping mechanism works, keep at it. But if in a moment of clarity and in, in, when you're honest with yourself and maybe with somebody else, you can look in the mirror and you can say, yeah, this really isn't working for me. All right, then we have a problem. So again, I don't, I, I think that's a very broad definition, but that's how I conceptualize it. Right. It, it basically, addiction would be defined as somebody whose choices in, in coping mechanism or uh, you know cho choice of what, whatever they're using in order to calm themselves down is something that um, they know maybe is not the best choice and it's impacting their ability to connect with family and it's impacting their ability to work functionally. I, I think that I think that's very helpful. Um, and now can we move on to the, the trauma part? You know, um, I, I have a working definition of trauma that I use, but I and, and I'm happy to go first. But I also you know kind of want to hear what your thoughts are on it. I'm actually curious. I'd love to hear your your definition of trauma. Um, okay, so can you, can you, yeah, go ahead. Many people have heard this from me, and they're probably sick of hearing it. But I, I go with I go with um, Peter Levine, and we, we talked about him before we started the show. Um, I go with his definition, which I think is very good, which is basically um, that trauma is an event that occurs to a person that they don't have the internal or external methods and resources to be able to deal with it. And I think that's very effective because, you know, when it comes to things that people go through, um, you know, as someone part of a trauma you know, community, and you might have the same sentiment as me, we hear a lot about big T and little t. And, you know, all of us have, as I, a lot of us feel that it's slightly offensive because no one has a right to judge and say, your trauma is just a small T, so why are you reacting that way? And your trauma is a big T. So that's, you know, and, and, and we understand what was meant. It wasn't meant in a bad way. So I, I think that, you know, it explains so much about why sometimes a lot of trauma uh, impacts children a little, bit, a little bit more frequently because they have less resources internally and externally. Um, you know, there are things, I'm a therapist. So whenever people ask me, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, tell me about the craziest case you've ever dealt with. I usually blink and say, do you want to sleep tonight? Right. So, we you know, as, as therapists, we could sometimes become traumatized, so to speak, from vicarious trauma and what we're going through. So we have to really take care of ourselves. Um, so when we look at trauma, but as therapists, we also have some resources that help us. You know, Peter Levine wrote a whole book on how to trauma proof your children and, and, and yourself. So so the way I, that's how I define trauma. There's, there's much more to it, but that's kind of a, a concept. Does, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that or if you have anything yeah. else you wanted to add. So, so, so I, I actually, I, I really appreciate that, Yosef, because um, I can't tell you how many times I'll hear it from clients about their spouse, right? Actually just heard it a couple of days ago. My, my, my wife claims that she was traumatized right now. We're talking about a gambling addict who gambled away their entire life savings and has never, and hasn't been truthful in his relationship for the last 10 years. Right. Um, but the the way that they were talking about, and again, this is a, a vague taste, but the way that they were talking about their spouse was like, come on, get it. Like, really? Like, what did I do? I, I didn't do anything illegal. I, you know, I didn't sin. I, you know, I didn't cheat on you. I, I wasn't that honest. Um, and, and I think other people and ourselves also, we fall into this trap of like the little T versus the big T. I see this a lot with um, children and grandchildren and the Holocaust survivors. Uh, there is, I, I think, I, I, I stay away from um, dogmatic statements, but I think we would all agree on this one. There is nothing that we're going through that can equate to four years in Auschwitz. Right? I think, yep. right? I think, you know, that would make sense. But I see a lot of the second generation, third generation invalidating their experiences because I didn't go through what my grandparents went through, what my, what my parents went through. So why am I making such a big deal about it? And I think this is where we really need to be clear that there, you know, there is no, there is no checklist to trauma. All right. There's no like, oh, you were in a concentration camp, you were blown up in an IED, or you spent four tours in Afghanistan, you're a trauma victim. Oh, you got bullied on the bus and away from school. Sorry, that doesn't, that doesn't match. Um, ironically, and I don't know if you would relate to the, if you would agree with this, but I, a lot of my, many of my clients have actually shared that the little T's hurt them more than big T's. Um, so, um, the, and again, everyone is going to be different, but for some people, the emotional abuse 
or the verbal abuse have a more lasting effect than being hit and having the physical scars. Now, again, I'm not, I'm, this is absolutely not definitive. I'm just sharing some, some of the stories that, that, that clients have shared with me. And I think this goes back to the idea that um, client trauma is not objective. It's not about what happened. It's about how I process what happened, how I perceived it. It's completely subjective, which I think answers, you know, the age old question of how you can have two children in the same home and one goes on to Harvard Medical School and the other becomes a heroin addict, right? And, you know, they're twins, they're genetically identical, you know, and, and they had the same upbringing and the same parents, but subjectively they perceive the world differently. And I think it's so important that, we're, you know, we need to be able to validate what our clients are going through and we need to be able to validate what we're going through. So it's not about who's worse than someone else, you know, who had it worse, who objectively had it worse. This is what I went through and this is the effect that it had on me. And because one person was more affected by trauma doesn't make them weaker than the other person. Um, it's, it, you know, it, for many, in many cases, it comes down to temperament and sometimes it comes down to sensitivity. You know, we're going to talk about addicts. Um, the addicts that I work with are some of the most sensitive people in the world. They're incredibly empathic. I've had addicts tell me like they can feel people's pain. So when you have someone who is really, really sensitive, who has a heart of gold, who, um, you know, feels the pain of others and then they go through pain, it's exponentially worse for them than it might be for somebody else going through the same exact thing. So I, I think when we talk about trauma, the definition before we talk about what happened, we need to be clear that it's not about what actually happened physically. It's about how I perceived it. Now, if I may, just Please. jumping to the recovery piece, um, there's actually a really great silver lining here because if trauma was about what happened to me, we'd never be able to recover. I can't go back in time and make your father not physically abuse you. It's not possible. But if trauma is, so trauma is, is what actually happened, you know, there's other we can do, but if trauma is how I perceived what happened, how I processed what happened, we can do that work. And I think, you know, the subjective nature of trauma both increases the the amount of trauma that we feel, but it also leads us to a path of recovery in terms of how we can maybe as an adult shift our perspective and, and help ourselves process that trauma. Amazing. Thank you. So to summarize, I, I started off with two questions and we had a very simple answer. Um, <laughs> and we're back here. Um, what is addiction? Addiction is something that is a, is a maladaptive coping mechanism that is deeply and, and, and impacting a person's ability to connect in a family setting and ability to function at work. Amazing. Um, trauma, you're going with the Gabber Mate uh, approach, which is trauma is not what happened to you, it's what happens inside you. Um, you know, Besser Van der Kolk has, has a lot on that as well. So that's definitely uh, amazing. So now let's put it all together because this is all about trauma and addiction. So in the people that, in the, in the clientele that you're working with, um, how much of an interlap is there between people that have addiction issues and people uh, that have experienced trauma, and is that being one of the causes or one of the or one of the um, corollaries of, of of what brought them to this situation? So, uh, to answer the question really uh, briefly, uh, there is a greater correlation between trauma and addiction than there is between obesity and diabetes. Well um, said. Classic. Right. And I think obesity and diabetes, we all wrap our heads around. They're like, all right, you know, you're really, really overweight. You're at risk for diabetes. We see that. For some reason, I, I don't know if we've wrapped our head around trauma addiction. Like when we see addicts, do we see trauma? Right. Or when we see trauma, do we see a high risk of, a, of, 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 of development of an addiction? Um, I don't know. But I, I, I think there's a, I think it's somewhat of 90%. And you can take a look at the ACE study that they did in California. Um, I, I don't know if, you know, reader, listeners can, can Google this, the ACE, the adverse childhood experience studies that they did out in California. It was like 90% of addicts um, went through significant levels of childhood trauma. And again, significant levels, not a checklist, but subjectively they went through it, which um, if I can bring the air in the room down for a second and make everyone sad. Um, the war on drugs we've been doing for the last 50 years has been a war on traumatized people. Like that's really what we've been doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, 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 I teach, uh, an addiction course in, uh, in NYU and, um, 
every year in the beginning, I have like students who are like, ah, I don't really want to do addiction. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't. And as we, you know, explore it in the first class, they really start getting to, I judge them. Right. I judge mm -hmm. the addict. It's like, well, what are you doing? You're in the, you know, I'm sleeping under a bridge with a bottle of alcohol and needle out of your arm, like all together. And I think my question is, can we see past the behavior? Yeah. Right? So when we see an addict, instead of seeing someone who is an addict and, you know, almost like mindlessly just throwing their lives away, can we see someone who may be incredibly sensitive, have a beautiful soul, someone who's incredibly empathic, who is deeply, deeply, deeply wounded? And the only thing that makes them feel better um, is unfortunately a drug that will kill them. Yeah. And I think, I think that's so well said, you know, a large, in my experience as well, in, in working with addiction, um, you know, clients, the number one thing that's going on inside them is the trauma. Um, my, my first internship, I, I was not able to get placed anywhere optimal. And as, as, uh, as it was introduced to me, you're working in a methadone clinic and I'm sorry, I know this is the bottom of all counseling, but that's where you're going. And that attitude was just, you know, permeating the walls and methadone clinics, as many people know, are a place where people who are addicted to opiates go and they get a regulated drug. And the problem is that because of their addiction, they often can't sleep. So clinics run usually very early in the morning. For example, my shift started at 4am. Um, and they try to dose everybody by nine, 10 o'clock, because the purpose is people could take their dose and then therefore be able to go out and work. So just rewind, I don't know, 20 years ago, I show up to my first day at work. And I had spoken with the, you know, owner of the company, and we were all ready to start. And there's a massive uh, police presence and everything. I'm like, wow, they made a party for my first day here. Um, the front window was smashed in. And people, someone was arrested. There's an ambulance there. I'm like, what in the world did I miss? Basically, two people got a little rowdy about who was in front of who one guy smashed the other guy through the front window of the of the methadone clinic that I was now working in. So that was my introduction to uh, addiction. And I, you know, I remember one of my first intakes, I asked the guy, what's, what's your address? And he calls me over to the window and he points, there's a 7-Eleven across the street. And he says, see that bench? That's my address. Yeah. And it was hard for me not to judge and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get resources? But when you're in the throngs of addiction, it just doesn't work like that. And I, I would yeah. say that I probably had, you know, almost no success with the clients until I started dealing with the um, trauma aspects of, of what was going on for them. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 finish that. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it, it's just it, exactly what you said. Like they're people, they're going through a struggle and it's easy for everyone else to judge them. Um, but really the truth is that, like you said, they really just need that trauma work to be able to help them. Mm -hmm. But but this is why I appreciate you sharing the story because this conceptualization is so important. As long as we're trying to treat the addiction, we miss the boat. Like this is not about the addiction. I've worked with people who have gone to rehab facilities. And it's all about abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And I'm a big fan of abstinence. If you can get abstinent, awesome, right? More power to you. But if all we do is make you not do this one thing that we don't want you to do, but we don't deal with any of the underlying stuff, you're going to go out and use again. We're not, we're actually doing you a disservice. Um, but being able to see the addict instead of seeing, and, and again, it's not easy because they will, and shifting to families, they will lie, they will cheat. They will steal. They will be an incredibly manipulative. Addicts are incredibly bright and really perceptive. They, they've learned how to read people as a survival mechanism because they need to get the drug that, you know, they need to get their lifeline. Um, and and um, I've always thought like, you know, I've always heard this in groups, like if addicts would use 10% of the energy they use to get the drug, drug and to not get right they'd be they'd be the greatest people and we'll get to this in the end i believe addicts in recovery are from you know the greatest yes. amongst us um, very well said yeah right um but if i if i may just just oh, yeah, while yeah. you were sharing the story the part that was coming up for me like that guy sleeping across that 7-eleven i worked with a client like that right and everybody passed him every day and he was a guy sleeping across 7-eleven he was dysfunctional and i got to know him and we worked together Turns out he's a decorated Navy medic, embedded with the Marine Corps. Right? He was. He was. He was. And with the Navy, he was embedded with the Marines, and um, he did multiple tours of Iraq. He rescued his platoon commander uh, um, um, after an IED explosion. 
right? And this is the person who just has such a huge heart for people. Um, I'm going to be honest, working with him was a privilege for me. But when you walk by him, it's, uh, you know, walk past the 7-Eleven and saw the guy with, with the needle or with the alcohol, nobody saw that. Always saw it was a guy throwing his life away and we judged him. Um, so I think this, this conceptualization is really important. Can we see the human being beneath the addiction? Amazing. That's good. We're lucky to have people like you in this field. I appreciate that. Because I'm focused on Jewish trauma, I appreciate it. I think everything we said until now applies to everybody. I wanted to just kind of focus on that a little bit. Um, would you say that, like, in my clinical experience, I would say that 90% of my experience is not within the Jewish community. 10% is, and, you know, being a resource, um, et cetera, and, and a referral system as well. But um, in your in your clinical experience, like what what percentage of people would would be you know from the Jewish population, whether whether religious or not, or from or not? Um, so that's a good question. Um, I guess up until about um, recently, I, I've been working in rehab um, space. So I have a private practice, and I worked either as a clinical associate director or a director of outreach, you know, and, and guiding families through the treatment um system which we can uh, we can spend hours talking about that you know being able to you know um getting the right guidance and how to get someone to detox how to do an intervention properly um you know how do you have boundaries while also having unconditional love for a child yeah. like all these things are incredibly important but when i was working in the rehab space i would say you know probably about 90 percent of the clients that i worked with were from the jewish community um if not more um early in my career, I spent a lot of time working outside of Atlantic City, and there I worked with, uh, like I mentioned, you know, um, uh, U.S. Uh, veterans, both active duty and veterans. So and then I, I spent a lot more time working outside of the community. Um, but right now, the majority of my work is in the community, and um, trauma does exist um, in the community. Like it, that's it, exactly it, what it, I, that, yeah, yeah, that's exactly where where I wanted to hear. You know, there, there's there's a company called the NCDAS which is the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics. And they try to track these things. There's also some articles by NIH that I'll, I'll quote. I just want to like read you a couple of stats and just kind of get your reaction to it. So it's estimated that um, from all people in the United States age 12 and older, it's estimated that about 50% of them have at least tried some type of illicit drug. Now, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that since the legalization of marijuana, which we didn't even, you know, we haven't even mentioned that on talking about addiction. And obviously we, most of the things we're talking about are much higher levels and the gateway drug and all the other, whether it's true, or it's not true. Let's not, let's not open that Pandora box, but some of the stats have changed a little bit because that one used to be considered a crime and therefore it was listed. But at the end of the day, it's pretty consistent that um, in the United States, about, you know, 50% of all people 12 and older have tried drugs. Okay, great. So people are trying it, but the, the general consensus is that it's about, 13, around 13% of the population has some type of um, illicit um, substance issue. Now, whether it's mild, whether it's moderate, whether whether it's severe, but that's that's a that's a decently high number. Canada, they, they always think they're better. Well, they actually, again, they range between 11 and 13%. And the NIH has an article, it has a couple of articles, but one, one of them uh, is actually from 2015, where they said that uh, the, the statistics in Israel, which again was trying to focus more on the Jewish population, says that it's about 13% as well, which shows that, you know, probably the addiction issues in the Jewish community, for, just from what the general populace is saying, there it's about 13% in general. I'm wondering what you found. I, I know I know that no, one's, no one has studied this the way that it should be studied as far as I know. And I, I've looked and I've talked and I've asked it's really complicated because then people, especially with Jews, you know, we know there's different demographics and, you know, why are you putting Hasidic people? Why are you putting non-Orthodox people there? Why are you putting, um, you know, more religious people? Or less? So it just gets very confusing. And I don't consider them a Jew. Why are they in there? Right. Just like the stats in Israel could include Arabs as well, because there's many Arab citizens. So, um, but anyway, so I want to hear your thoughts and I'll, I'll share a few more things in that NIH article as, as we go along. So, so I think, you know, um, coming from, let's say, the PhD angle, right? So research is really, really important. And research is important. Whenever you want to tackle a problem, we need to know what that problem is, both in terms of its severity, um, the prevalence of that that problem, um, how widespread is it? I mean, right, collecting data is incredibly important. Um, yeah. I've actually written about this, not publicly, but I, I have written on this. I don't have it I don't have it in front of me. I can look for it. There are a handful of articles. You can find them on Google Scholar. There are a handful of articles on the prevalence of addiction in the Jewish community. Um, and you're right, a lot of them are, you know, this sect of Judaism, that sect, you know, you know, who we included, who we not including. 
Um, there are there is some research out from Israel. Um, we went from like I think the 1970s. There was some research done that really indicated we had no addiction problems, like it just didn't exist. Yeah. And we can get into the um, the cultural piece where it's like you know um, Jews don't have that problem. Oh, they, uh, no, we're not addicts, right? We we can drink at a uh, at a Shabbos meal, but you know we're fine during the week. Um, but then um, as we we started changing a little bit um, how we did the research, so we started asking. Uh, one of the studies that I read, they started asking, "Do you know anyone? Not to you, no, God forbid, you don't have any. But do you know anybody who is struggling with an addiction?" And then all of a sudden, like the numbers go up, right? Because yeah, I do know somebody, or I do have someone in my show who, yeah, he does drink a little bit too much. Um, but also, I think um, our culture has changed, um, and I think we've become much more um, open talking about it um, and discussing it publicly. And, and you know, even this right now, right? The fact that we're doing this right now, I don't think this was something that we would have done 30 years ago. Um, Maybe not even so, 10 years. Yeah, possibly not even 10 years ago. I, I, I will say. Um, you know, for the years that I, I helped, you know, manage a Jewish rehab, kosher rehab, local interested area, um, our numbers went up um, consistently every year. Um, and um, it's not a problem we're creating. The problem is there. Okay. So there's absolutely a problem of addiction in the Jewish community. Um, now, again, um, I'm probably not the I'm 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 the right person to ask, but also not the right person to ask. And I'll tell you why. Um, I I sit in this all day, right? So like this is what I'm seeing. There's the the confirmation bias, right? Like this is all I see all day. So I may walk out of my office and be like, you know what? Everybody's an addict. Because everybody right. that I know is an addict. But that right. might not be true. And I think it's that's really important because I work with like some parents and like they'll call me up, oh, my son started drinking alcohol, you know, or beer or whatever. Not everybody that drinks alcohol is alcoholic, right? That, right. You know, that, that isn't that isn't true. But we absolutely have a problem. So um, it's sort of, you know, somewhere in the middle. Uh, I don't know if you want to get to the trauma piece in the Jewish community. But... I definitely do. I, I, I have one more question before that. Just with this okay. NIH article, like three of the main things that they focused on was the moral abhorrence of, of alcoholism. And this is again, 2015, but basically saying that that kind of caused people to be in denial at first. Um, and then like you mentioned, you know, the denial of, I don't have a problem, um, you know, and, and, that, and, you know, but other people do, which is exactly how they got their demographic research. Um, and just the, yeah, the idea that like, you know, it, it, there's something very wrong with you and it's going to impact your life socially, um, you know, in, in many, and spiritually when you have this malady and therefore, it, because of that, it was brushed under the rug or denied. Like, and I guess yeah. that those are the things that you mentioned. Yes. And if I can, if I can, if I can pivot also that, right? So, um, as much as much shame as there is around alcoholism and what it means and what it implies about me, and I do something else to be in denial. I've noticed that behavioral addictions, let's say pornography addiction or sex addiction, are are um, are increasingly more shameful. Yeah. So we're much more in denial about that. We don't even have numbers. I mean, I'll ask you, Yosef, right? let's try and get numbers on porn addiction in the firm community, right? Yeah. Or in any community, right? I mean, who would answer a question like that? It, it, it's, yeah. it's 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 really really shameful, which makes it very hard to treat. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think um, there's a challenge in collecting this data, and different addictions are going to be challenging. And I know you don't want to open Pandora's box, but we'll just touch it for a second. I have clients who have come into come into rehab for weed just weed quote unquote right just weed addiction yeah and they're embarrassed to speak in group because the guy sitting next to them is a heroin addict the other guy's a coke addict the other guy's you know abusing fentanyl and you're here just for weed like what kind of loser am i yeah like what kind of loser but there's so much and again this is where we go to like that there's so much self-judgment self-loathing like the invalidating of our own experiences take this client and again i'm creating a creating a case i've worked on similar cases before but you have a weed a weed addiction. Weed caused you to commit a crime that you you now may be facing twenty years behind bars. Like, what do you mean? It's just weed, right? Right. Or you use so much weed, you're actually projectile vomiting. You're physically ill, right? Or you're having panic attacks because of the weed. Or, and this is an extreme case, you're having psychotic uh, psychotic episodes because of yeah. your weed use. So I think we, we like. All right, here's a challenge. And you get human beings not to judge themselves. 
right? Not to be too harsh, but I think as a society, can we move past the judgment of, oh, just, you know, alcohol, come on, like, you know, grow up, it's just weed, or I can't talk about it, it's a porn addiction. This is what we're going through. And we yeah. need to be able to um, validate our experiences if we want to treat it. Amazing. Could could we could we open the other Pandora's box that, that of you know what are the traumas in the Jewish community that you're seeing as the top three or top five causes? And you know we we both we love people, we love Jews, and we're not here to criticize anybody. And and I don't think anybody's going to take it the wrong way because you know I think that the rabbis and the educators and the professionals and the parents, everybody's you know really um, been rallying and you know trying to change things which is amazing but i think the more we just say it the more helpful that could be and there are people that there are people that are listening to this podcast right now who might be suffering from an addiction issue the way you and i defined it might have experienced trauma right which most people have right and that could be impacting their life or they and they, or they could be thinking about a loved one and um you know I, I don't want them to walk away not knowing hey you're not alone there's a lot of people that have these experiences as well and then my next questions will be how to help them which we'll we'll get to next so um in, in terms of trauma from community i mean you're asking a really broad question um and there's so much here you know i, I had the initial answer that i wanted to give and as you just speaking there was something else that i wanted to share so i'm just going to share it briefly but in terms of where we've gone as a community i do work with a lot of clients um i would say at a certain point in time 80 percent of our clients that i was working with in the in an inpatient facility uh were sexually abused at one mm -hmm. point in time um so sexual abuse is definitely up there um but in and terms of where out of those clients yeah. just to just to uh come in a little bit more uh male female any any information mm -hmm. on that a lot of males so I, I i ended up working with a lot of the males um females yeah. as well um but a lot of male clients who are sexually abused and you also i'm sure you know you, you've seen this but i can't tell you what it's like to sit in a room with an adult man and have him share a story that he has never in his entire life shared with a living soul. Yeah. And that's happened. Like, just imagine the burden that these that that, that this person has to carry with them every single waking moment. Um, it, it it's it's um suffocating isn't even the right word. Um so yeah, we I've seen, we've seen a lot of sexual abuse. Yeah. Um and you know, the impact that, that sexual abuse has had. And again, I, I want to go back to the subjective piece because I'm, I'm thinking about the clients who I've worked with. Um, everyone will, will react to their trauma differently. And some people will, um, you know, some people will break down from the trauma. Some people become very stoic and pull away from people and become incredibly defensive in relationships. Um, there is, you know, the, the same way we say that there's no one way to grieve. There's no one way to be impacted by trauma. Um, so, but sexual abuse is definitely up there. Um, if we can shift to the positive, um, as a community, we've done an immense amount of work to mitigate um, cases of sexual abuse. Uh, and I've worked with individuals from Aludim and we've had these conversations. Um, I don't think there is a school in the Jewish community that does not have a window on every door where uh, doors don't have locks on them. Where there are cameras in every single room right um where um you know doors going into a bathroom like the the, the you know entrance way is open um teachers and students and rebellion and students are not left alone you know individually there's so much awareness that we've done um so i think we've really come really a, a very far away from where we've been but sexual abuse is definitely one of the um um more common things that I've seen with the adults yeah. that I've worked with. I've also seen a lot of emotional abuse and neglect. Um, I think neglect doesn't get enough credit for um, how pervasive it can, the pervasive impact that it can have on a person. Again, with neglect, there's no scars. Okay. I can't even point to an event. Nothing happened. It's actually the absence of things happen. But people who are neglected, especially children, um, and I think this is true for trauma and childhood in general, children, and I think adults too, we internalize things. So when I'm neglected as a kid, my first thought is not, what's wrong with my parents that are neglecting me? My right. first thought is, what's wrong with me? I'm defective. Because the only two people in the world 
who are actually responsible to care for me are not caring for me. What's wrong with me? What did I do? And um, that 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 can um, that trauma can um, have a very very serious impact on the core identity of of who we are as people. Um, but then also it can lead to very maladaptive coping mechanisms. So either I shut down completely from people, or I've noticed clients will become histrionic, right? They'll 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 well you know drama, right? Because that's how they get people's attention, or they remember that when they were younger, when they were sick, their parents actually cheered for them. So they'll you know they'll 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 be the you know ah, this is wrong for me and that's not good and I'm always sick and I'm always struggling. Um, and it almost seems like self-sabotage. Like every every time something is going well for them, something you know doesn't go well. And, and really, part of it is because that's how they learn to connect and attach. Yeah. So neglect is actually up there. It is absolutely up there. Um, you know, again, we've seen physical abuse, emotional abuse. I do want to touch on for one second, yeah, the intergenerational effect of the Holocaust, um, because I, I don't. Rachel, who does research on that? Who? I'm sorry. Rachel, who does research on that? Is phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. 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 So there, there is a lot of research, um, but I think even anecdotally, um, and 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 this is a this is a tough. I mean, it's not a tough topic because, um, I. I'm going, to, I'm going to share an opinion statement. I don't know if you would agree or not, but I believe that generation is the greatest generation, right? The ability to pick yourself up from horrors of the Holocaust and continue with your life. Um, so I think, you know, on, on one hand, it, they're, they're, they're superhuman in their strength, but what happened to them had an effect on them. Yeah. And then we see that, that effect, you know, passed down generationally. Um, I've seen, you know, um, inabilities to connect a lot of attachment trauma, um, you know, things like that. And, and a lot of attachment trauma comes up in addiction. Um, you know, so when I, um, didn't feel connected, um, with caregivers, I need to find some other way to self-soothe and, yeah. and that leads to addiction. Amazing. Thank you very much for explaining that. I mean, very, very sad, but, um, very, very, um, honest and, and, and real, you know, sexual abuse is a huge thing. And I think most of us in the field see that also 80% of the time, it's definitely very, very prevalent. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, the, the abuse that takes place, whether it's at school, of course, there's things at camp, there's things in school, there's things on the street, there's things at home, babysitters, relatives, et cetera, like, like we know, but, you know, the best thing is we try to educate our children about, you know, healthy touch and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the emotional, um, abuse, neglect, which I think is very, very well stated by you. Um, and that, that, that definitely is very, very prevalent. And as you said, you know, people are looking for self-soothing and normally a healthy, parental um presence would, would do that and when that's not there there's there's this desire um Bessel van der Kolk talks about where 90 percent of um you know addicts were you know physically abused often in his in his experience and, and and I think there's a lot to that that you know person is just used to punishing themselves and there's an element of self-punishment that's there but it, that's like a little psycho analytical but very interesting stuff there in his research um and then of course the the last thing of you know intergenerational or epigenetics which is something that I think is a very large area of trauma, you know, research that is coming out and probably I think is up and coming because mm -hmm. there's a lot more that has to be said there. So amazing. I just want to um, kind of end off with um, the idea of where do you draw the line? If somebody's trying to get help, you know, okay, yeah, I admit I have a problem. So I'm going to just get a self-help book or I'll talk to a therapist versus somebody that comes and they need to go inpatient. Like, what's the guide? I'm calling you. I need help or a relative of mine needs help. Like, how do I determine what level of care I need? So um, in Shield and Social Work, there's this mantra where we meet clients where they're at. And um, I think that works clinically, but I think it works in every relationship, right? Like if, if there's going to be a hierarchy where I'm here and you're here and I'm going to tell you what to do, that thing you're not going to do, right? Nobody likes being told what to do. Nobody likes the implication that there's a stranger out there that knows how to live my life better than me. It's an incredibly arrogant implication. So when I get a call from someone who's struggling, I work with them. Okay. So part of it is, you know, and again, for those who are aware, motivational interviewing plays a big role in this. But I, I really try and create an environment where can you be honest about what's going on for you? I don't want to hear what, you know, your wife thinks is wrong with you or your parents are, think are wrong with you. What are you struggling with? 
who do you want to be? What do you need to do to become the person that you want to be? Because I promise you, you're not calling me because you're before you have a ton of other things you can be done with Thursday night and reaching out for help. What's going on? So we start there and then we start feeling out the clients. And a lot of times, some not not all the time, sometimes the client will just break down and say, you know what, Nate, like, yeah, this is not working for me. I I need help. I just need help. I can't do this anymore. Just get me into a facility, get me into a program, and I'm ready to go. And sometimes they'll be like, no, you know what? I think I can still do it. And I think I can, maybe I'll do some self-help. Maybe I'll do, you know, outpatient once a week, twice a week, maybe a group here and there. And my position is I am I am honest with my clients. So I'm going to be honest with you, but I'm going to work with you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if this is where you're at. Let's do it. And if it works, I will be the second happiest person. You're going to be the happiest. I'll be just, I'll be right behind you. Yeah. But if it doesn't work, it allows us to, to glean more evidence, more information. Like, hey, I had this idea, you know, one, one, you know, a self-help book was going to help me. Here I am a month later, I'm calling you up. Didn't help me. All right. What went wrong? Well, X, Y, and Z. Okay. Maybe we need to up it. Yeah. And then by doing that, we can very compassionately and empathically work with people to get them to where they want to be. Amazing. Does that make sense? That's a good approach. That makes perfect sense. So meet them where they're at, which makes a lot of sense. Give them their autonomy. Um, be honest with them and encourage them to try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, then we need to kind of come back to the drawing board and do a higher level of care, uh, hopefully Absolutely. with their motivation. Amazing. Absolutely. Any um, any resources that you could offer if somebody is struggling with addiction or trying to figure out um, a, you know something to do to help themselves? Um, so there are a couple of things. Um, first of all, in, in, for, in the Jewish community, Amudim and Relief are two amazing organizations that I uh, strongly I recommend I work very, very closely with them. Um, there are also people in um, the addiction space um, that can guide someone through treatment. Um, I have a couple of colleagues. It's something that I do, and, and we work together. Um, there are resources out there. I always tell people, let's start with them. We didn't start with relief. Um, you know, we can move from there. I am going to put this out there. If anybody listening has any questions, you can reach out to me. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm willing to help. I'll do, you know, I'll do what I can to be helpful, um, but that's definitely something that we can do. There's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a shout out to uh, Dora Shopta, who's a really close colleague of yeah. mine down in Florida. Um, she does this really, really well, um, and we've had a lot of conversations about this. There are good people in the community who want to help. Now, addiction is a very, very tough um, field to be in. Uh, a, you have to have, uh, you have to be lucky enough to 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 find the right people that are going to work for you. But then even when we find the right people, not always stick, right? And, you know, this treatment center doesn't work, that treatment center doesn't work. But those are, that's what I, I really suggest in terms of, you know, acute um, 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 referrals, like, yeah, yeah. you know, for, for guidance. Um, I've also, I, I don't know how popular they are right now, but there is an organization called Crisis Text Line, um, which I actually volunteered for them um, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was actually an unbelievable organization. It's pretty much a suicide hotline or a crisis hotline, but it's all through texting. Um, so although texting is not as um, verbose, right, as as speaking, right, verbally, um, it does come in handy when you can't physically speak, okay? Um, or you want to just do it on the go and you just need someone to reach out to. Uh, I think the number is 741741. I think that's the number to text for crisis hotline, uh, for the crisis hotline. Um, and uh, they're located, really great. That's located. It's, in, it's, it's, it's national. I think by now it's even international. I think now it's even international, Canada, Australia. Um, and you know, 24 seven, there are hundreds of volunteers who are trained and I've been through the training. It's a really, really good training. Exactly. And they're really, they're, they're trained really well to, um, talk you down or talk or be with you yeah. through the crisis. And then they can offer acute, you know, referrals, like, you know, here's a, uh, you know, there's a, there's an app for like Sandart and, you know, there, there are, they have a lot of meditative apps that they can share, uh, but then they could also give real, you know, real world referrals. So uh, local resources and stuff like that. Um, amazing. So crisis text line is really helpful. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So if anybody's listening, uh, we're going to put all that in the show notes with Amudim and relief and the crisis text line. Um, and uh, most importantly, you know, listening to Nassanal Nagelbat, who is a expert in the field and compassion and insight. Um, if you want to get in touch with Nisanal, is there a best way they could get in touch with you? Email, phone? 
Um, sure. So Ross, whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. So um, let's do email. Um, okay. I'll, I'll share my email address. Uh, it's a long name, so yeah. We'll, for those we'll of you listening, yeah, put it in the show notes. But for those of you who are listening on two X, this might be the time where you want to slow it down a little bit. Um, it's n nagelblatt at gmail.com. So it's n n a g e l b l a g t at gmail.com. Just send me an email. Um, you know, I, I, I may not be able to respond immediately. Sometimes it takes about 24 to 48 hours, but I will do what I can to be helpful. Um, there is help out there. There, And I think this is important. Uh, if we're going to end, um, there is help out there and there are people who get clean. Um, I'm just going to speak personally for a second. I would not be able to do this work if we didn't also experience the people who made it through the other side. That happens. Um, and for those who are listening out there and struggling, I want you to know it's real. There are millions of people out there who who, who can get into recovery. Um, and really, if we're going with the trauma angle, a lot of the recovery is being able to lean into that trauma. Um, and when you do, uh, they, are, they are the most beautiful people in the world because they know what it means to be hurt they're really sensitive to others. They're really aware of themselves, right? Like sometimes I wish uh, we made 12 step meetings mandatory. You know, should be 12 step meeting. But can you yep. imagine a world, can you imagine the world we would live in if everybody was in a self help group, right? So these people are incredibly sensitive. They're really aware of their own emotions. They're working on trying to become the best versions of themselves that they can possibly be. And uh, that vision is a possibility. Thank you so much, Nasano. This was really very inspiring to me. Um, I, I really, I'm very taken by your humility um, and your passion on this subject. And, you know, I'm thinking about my clients, just like any good therapist, um, you know, and just the things that I've learned from you today have, were helpful in my own personal practice and just helping other people. And um, it's amazing that we have a warrior like you who's advocating for the community. And um, I've met you on a couple of podcasts and I really look forward to, you know, continuing our relationship. And um, I know that people will reach out to you. And, um, you know, I thank you for, for giving that for the community. Um, and it's been an honor to be here with you today. And thank you so much for joining. Thanks for listening to the Jewish Trauma Network. For additional resources, free and premium courses, leave questions or suggestions, or to support our mission, please visit jewishtrauma.com. And always remember, your life can and will be better.